John Summers is the motoring historian. He was a company car thrashing technology sales rep that turned into a fairly inept sports bike rider. Hailing from California, he collects cars and bikes built with plenty of cheap and fast and not much reliable. On his show, he gets together with various co-hosts to talk about new and old cars, driving, motorbikes, motor racing, and motoring travel. Uh, good day, good morning, good afternoon. I, I don't need to inflect my voice now because I've got the jingle, haven't I? Although Mark and I haven't heard it, so we have to role play that there was a jingle, even though Mark doesn't know what the jingle is. See, this recording thing is never as it's never natural, even when you try and uh, when you try and make it that way. Um, how you doing, Mark? I'm all right, thank you, mate. I'm all right. England are 286 for four, which is looking decent in the last Ashes test. So, you know, they just need to carry on, not lose many more wickets. Well, thank you for the uh, for the cricket update. I, I've got to say that I was never much of a cricket fan. I was more of a city in the stack. Do I just hang up now? <laughs> <laughs> Call yourself an Englishman? Fuck's sake. Unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's funny that. So um, that Evelyn War the loved one, the satire on Englishmen living on the West Coast, it, it actually begins with, well, it's all set up around snobbery around the cricket club and being president of the cricket club being the uh, most important thing. Um, I, I worked at four companies in the Valley over the years, one way and another, um, four different institutions. Each of them, engineering was Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi kind of dominated. Um, in each case, there was a cricket team and there's a really strong culture of cricket around Silicon Valley, not carried on by, by Englishmen, although a lot of Englishmen, of course, uh, of course, play. They were always quite disappointed that I was uh, uh, not a player. I'm not a player of anything, though, am I? Not I was, really. in, I was in Vegas and, we, and, and I managed to lose $8 when I only thought I was gambling a dollar. Like literally, like, like, it's all credit cards now. Have you been to Vegas and, and looked at the fruit? Not for a while, no. Um, last gambling I did was the at the MGM, but that was just a house tournament of poker where you bought in for like, I think it was like $95 or something. And there was like 30 or 40 people in. It was like three or four tables. And you just played till like, I think they paid out the, the top two. But it was like, it was worth having. Like the first was like 1500 bucks. Second was like $900, something like that. I came third, which was not, so no pay. Um, but it was quite fun. And when you do poker like that, you can't see the other players' faces. So you're judging them based purely upon the way that they're playing. Oh, no, no, no. This was, this was live. This was uh, actually at tables when I was in in Vegas. So you can see them. You can see all the other players at the table. So, But no, on poker games online, generally speaking, you can't, no. Um, huh. But uh, yeah. Huh. Um, similar in terms of betting strategies and stuff, but... Um, it is a bit different. I wouldn't profess to be particularly good at either. Jamie's better than me. Yes. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think he plays. He certainly plays more. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's hit and miss. Um, so you know, he, he's 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 decent at it. I think he's also uh, probably a bit more ruthless as well. I suspect. Um, but um, yeah. Um, 
It's good. I mean, I enjoy it. It's good fun. But uh, I haven't played much for a while. I've got. I, I I opened my PokerStars account the other day and noticed that there was like three hundred and fifty dollars in there. I was like, shit. I didn't even remember. <laughs> I last I remember having was like a hundred dollars in there. So I must have won some before I then stopped playing. So, yeah. Hmm. Um. It's kind of a tawdry world, though, isn't it? I remember one of the last deals I did in London before leaving for before I, I left London. One of the opportunities I was quite sad to walk away from as a tech salesperson was uh, I can't remember if it was Betfair or if it was AAA, but one of the really big um, things that went on to be a really big gambling place. I met them in a pub in Leicester Square with a guy that I've kind of on and off stayed in touch with, like somebody who I was friends with, like he was the tech guy, if you like, and I was the, the, the sales guy. And, you know, I remember about it, and we will eventually get to cars. There was a Carrera 4S up against the curb, like a 993 Carrera 4S up against the curb, and I remember looking at it and thinking it was kind of appealing, despite the fact that I was never much about the, the four-wheel drive. And uh, I thought of that car just yesterday when uh, my son and I were flipping through um, the latest Gooding. Well, it was, it was not the latest Gooding. It was Gooding from Amelia Island, which is always super Porsche heavy. Now, a lot of like, you know, a, couple, a 935 and a 934 and an IROC Porsche, you know, they had, they had like nice cars. But they also had... Um, uh, I would say three, I mean, I didn't stop and count, but it felt like three or four, nine, nine, three, four S's. And I'm like, I, again, I'm, I'm just doubtful of the four wheel drive. The four wheel drive doesn't feel that pure to me. No, I was suppose that they were more popular because they still have the sort of the pendulum handling a bit and therefore the four wheel drive was more like it was uh more like you keep you on the road oh yeah i guess i'd not thought of it from that point of view is that why they're loved then are they considered super drivable i don't know but like they did have the reputation or at least in the generation before that and maybe the one before that of being a bit sort of you know Lift off, oversteer, see you through the hedge. You know, Porsche corner at the Nurburgring yeah, yeah. is the all down, the, uh, the uphill right. Yeah, all so, of the, uh, all of the, um, all of the cars, the like the the sixties cars and the seventies cars, and I would say the eighties ones, really, certainly the like up to was it eighty eight that they changed the that they went on to the nine six four. I mean even. I know I, I drove um I drove I've driven two nine six fours, but my memory of um a white one that I drove on the just on a bit of dual carriageway outside outside Reading, um, was was that the pedals floor hinged like a Volkswagen Beetle. And and that I remember being really put off by by that. That that was yeah, don't know why that put me off so much, but it made it. I guess it made the car feel very old-fashioned. Yeah, although they've mainly gone that way now, haven't they? 
Yeah, I don't know. It, it was something to do with, I remember something to do with the, it was the way that my heel was on the floor and I had to like maybe, I don't know, lift my heel up or something like that. Anyway, I, I, uh, I was like not, um, I was put off, I was put off classic 911s by the pedals. Looking back, this was a 964 that was white, a Targa that was white. So, you know, it wasn't exactly Porsche's finest moment, which was probably, I don't remember being put off by the colour. It was the pedal that, that put me off. You know, I drove another one, another 964 that was a guard's red one that belonged to, do you remember I worked for that dreadful recruitment company? Mm. Uh, there was uh, the, the, main, the big bosses, like Lieutenant, was this guy, Charles Liddy. Charles, if you're listening, uh, you, you, I never understood how you put up with Gary's abuse. But I see from LinkedIn you're doing different things now, so good, good, good on you. He had one. He had a, and he let me drive it. I remember him being nervous about me going too fast. It was a piece of road that I'd driven motorcycles along, so you know. And and it was, you, you know, you know the other Porsche I test drove. Do you remember this? I was this because getting because Amelia Island they had one of these as well. It was just like the one I drove when they were new. Or maybe it wasn't when they were new. The 968 CS. Mm. Do you remember I test drove one of those? I don't. I remember the cars. Um, I'll tell you what you will remember. Do you remember. I was more interested in that than the um, than the 911s of the period, frankly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, this to, to wit this story. Do you remember when we lived in Aldermaston? You remember near our house, like on the way to my office on the back lanes way, there was that long straight bit of road. Like it, but it was crowned. It was a B road. It was mm. crowned. It was narrow and it had a bad surface, didn't it? Not like a terrible surface, but it had a surface which meant that more than more than 70 miles an hour was fine, but approaching a hundred was not. Hmm. That nine six eight, I drove it along there, and it was, it was absolutely fine. I I was really I can believe that impressed with it along that piece of road. That's what I uh, what I remember about that car. But you know what made me think of that car was how, despite that being awesome, everything else about Porsches at that time was a bit underwhelming. The interior wasn't that wow. You know, it didn't have. Um, it certainly didn't have what a Jaguar's interior had. No, interiors are weird, aren't they? Because I mean, I'm never that bothered if they. I'd rather they, you know. Um, like when I dropped the uh, that uh, uh, McGann off, the guy said to me, "Well, it's nicer inside than I thought it would be," and it isn't bad inside, but it's nothing in comparison to a comparable. Um, even BMW, let alone a Porsche of the, of the same, you know, 2015 or whatever. But, I mean, I didn't give a shit. I mean, you're spending a whole load of money, and they spent all the money on the suspension and the other stuff and, and putting a proper chassis in it. So, you know, you can't complain. But, yeah, people these days are quite, quite finicky about that shit. Um, I, I mean, I, I have a friend with a, a Cayenne GTS, a brand-new Cayenne GTS. It is lovely inside. I really feel like Porsche have, have raised their game around uh, around interiors. Um, mm. So they are about... You know, it always makes it heavy as fuck, though, that's sort of the problem. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they, they really are. 
Um, I mean, all all new cars are. But if you you think of it, right, Porsche, most of the vehicles they make now have four doors. That's really quite hard to get your head around, really, isn't it? It's quite, if you think of it, it's quite successful image building that they've done to give us the impression that they're still really a a sports car maker. And, of course, they are because the pure products are that, but. But yeah, yeah. Although you could argue these days they're a collector's car maker, on the basis that if you haven't been on the list and bought at least three nine elevens or other sports products before, they won't put they won't sell you a GT three. They won't sell you any of these other special editions. So they're as bad as Ferrari now in terms of you know good luck if you want to get a new car from them. Right? If you buy in a bog standard nine eleven or something like that, yeah, fine. But like, if you want one of the special editions, you need you, you need to have bought other cars. Um, or they won't sell you one. So I spoke to someone about Ballet at Goodwood and was lamenting the fact that they could, uh, his mate wanted to buy a GT3 and was there was told, I'm sorry, sir, kind of thing. I, I mean, my jaw is is on the floor. You mean that when the crypto hits the moon, I am not just going to be able to click order on that I suspect I agree not. with gold wheels that my son has specked up. I suspect not. Um, and if you have to buy one second hand and add, add extra money. Chosen contrasting leather stitch steering wheel and embossed Porsche logo replaced with my grinning face hand drawn on the, on the, it, that's not going to. That's not. That's, uh, I, I fear, fear not. I mean, I may, may be proven wrong, but um, yeah, I've had a couple of anecdotal stories suggesting that g- g- approaching the dealership and saying, like, so can I get a 911 GT3 then resulted in us, you know, the amused chuckle and what other Porsches have you owned, sir, kind of conversation. So um, I know that, you know, stuff like the sort of Porsches that I've been excited about, like the Cayman GT4 and things like that when it came out, that was a sort of waiting list, forget about it. Um, yeah. And there was one selling on some German version of eBay within three months for twice the sticker price that it sold for. I think it sold for 140 and one went on sort of a German car auction site for 300 plus euros. But there's, um, um, so uh, those relatives of ours in, in, in Florida, one of the, one of the uncles has a brother who's been in this world of, of investable modern Porsche. Um, I mean, again, right, I was looking at Amelia Island with with Ollie and and it's a market I don't understand. I mean, as simple as there were two 930s. So these are like late 70s, 911 turbos. We would call them there then, 930s. That, wait, I guess they've been designated. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, I never called them that in period. Car magazines never called them that in period. It, either way, the first generation, the first car with a whale tail and the turbo, the the real, like, put-you-in-the-hedge specials, right? Those those cars, um, two of them, one was like, I don't know, 200 to 300, and the other one was like 600 to 900. And I'm like, what, what? Has the other one been owned by the Aga car? Has it only done 1,700 miles from you? Like, did did Ferdinand Porsche, like, conceive his last child in it? I mean, I, I don't know if Ferdinand Porsche has a child, but, you know, but you know, you know like, what, what makes that car worth so much more? 
And you know, with the thing with Porsche guys is is going to be uh, uh, super. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I I'm I don't care to know what the minutiae is. I I just would want a nine thirty that I could drive, and if I got a stone chip, not be too broken up about it. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, increasingly, I'm looking at Porsche and thinking I'm not sure I want a nine eleven. I quite like the idea of a Cayman, a Cayman or um, a Boxster, just a, a Boxster S with a stick, and that'll be fine. I'm not even a Boxster S necessarily, um, but I like a little sort of chuckable hatchback, a little chuckable sort of um, ragtop, good fun, mid-engine. The whole, like, bigger and fatter all the time that pervades the whole car market I understand why they do it. You know, you've got a bit bigger and fatter. Your kids have got a bit bigger. So, you know, this year's Accord needs to fit last, like, you know, the customers from three years ago. I, I get that. So I get why the Accord needs to be the size of what used to be the legend kind of thing. I And the Civic is now the size of the Accord. I get, I get why that has to happen. But at the same time, there's still... Uh, um, well, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm more interested in the small in the smaller models as they come along. You know, I'm more interested in the cat than I am in the Fiesta. I'm more interested in the Boxster than the, I mean. I always, I always say that. I always feel like I if now now I realise I probably can't do this, but if I were ever to suddenly come into a lot of money, I would call the Porsche dealer and have a GT3. But I would also have a totally strictly white like Boxster, whatever the basey stick shift, like as simple as you could, as you could have it, as simple and light as you could, as you could have it. Um, only because I, I know that there's a difference between what you think you're going to like and what the journalists say is, you know, what Chris Harris waxes lyrical about, the difference between that and what actually fits your life. And I have a feeling that a uh, little Boxster might fit your life really really well you know it, I, don't know, mm. I might feel about it like i do about the fiesta you know that it's like a marvelous car but it's like just it, you know it's it's also too compromised you know so so that'd be so small wouldn't it like you know i and uh uncomfortable and stick shift yeah but you live in the wrong country for the fiesta the fiesta's a european car it is yeah, the ST. That's where it, it's it shines best because the roads aren't as big, the the park, car parking isn't as big. Everything it feels nippy and and excellent, and you know the fact that you need to stir it up a bit to get it going is not a problem. Um, yeah, um, I actually don't find. I mean, I I uh, I did a road trip out to um, Copperopolis to sort out the registration so i found i can do that remotely now so i don't need to go out there but did the run out there and and you know what more car i don't really need more car than than oh, it's fast i mean if, you know, if you pretty if you stir it up it's really fast and because mm. it's just the chassis is so awesome any turn that you encounter there is just an absolute, an absolute pleasure. Um, 
I'm going to jump around on my agenda. Actually, we've stumbled into my agenda there. One of my agenda items was a uh, uh, to talk a little bit about you have a Fiesta ST, I have a Fiesta ST. Um, I, I mean, in terms of a sort of running report almost to talk about how you've been getting on with it. I, I mean, I've not done, it's not like I've done anything to mine in 17,000 miles, it, uh, apart from knock a wing mirror off and break some other bits of body kit which is annoying but you know i guess i'm not planning to sell the car so it, it's fine um so it now as at the front it's about to get replacement front tires and i was going to do all four because like i've never rotated them so the rear ones are okay and the sense that the economical thing to do would be just do one axle but no i just want the purity of the handling i'm going to do all four um and I'm probably going to do, I don't know, I might look around. I might do, I do tire rack for tires. So I might look and see if they can, like what they recommend. Or I might just. I mean, I would get good shit for it anyway. Pilot Sport 5 yeah. or something like that. So, um, yeah. I mean, I know you will, but yeah. Pilot Sport 5s or something along those lines, I think, you know. So how many miles, um, how many miles has yours done now? Has anything gone wrong? Talk 48, I think. Um, it's had a clutch master cylinder. Um, I think that's about it. Um, uh, fucked off actually this week because some prick outside BMQ had spilled a load of paint on the floor and we parked up and went for a Costa coffee and didn't notice and then drove away and didn't notice and evidently must have driven through it. It was like, it, it was a, a bit of a grim day and someone had obviously dropped some paint coming out of the store and just left it all over the floor and it spat up the bottom of the, of the, um, of the, uh, sills on the, the front and back. So there's like white paint splashes, which is very irritating. So um, I'm going to see whether it comes off. Well, I suspect it won't, in which case I might have to get a, an insurance claim to get the fucking thing resprayed, which is extremely irritating. Hey, um, yeah, I would, would look at... Look at there's, there's been a revolution in cleaning products, right? There's like a million, I dare say, Chinese chemists working to incrementally make better like cleaning products. I, I follow all these YouTubers, right? And the YouTubers are all sponsored by cleaning products, right? And and the reality is, I think there's a bit of an arms race going on. The bottom line is, you would be surprised what, what you can do. I would urge you to stay away from the repo. The oh, I, I don't want to have to do it if I don't have to. We have a geezer that comes and does the cars. I do the cars generally, but like once in a while when they're really shitty or like they... You're going to get them validated inside and out. They could redo with it. We get Steve to come around. He does it. Um, and he does He does a really good job. Nice guy. Um, but I might get him to, I might clean them and then get him to come around and have a look at it and give me his opinion. Because if there's some sort of a jungle juice I can use to get rid of it. Because, I mean, it's paint that's gone on over the top of whatever lacquer on top of the paint that was originally done. So there's layers of stuff. So hopefully we can get rid of that yeah, shit without fucking hurting. There's, like, household paint for your bloody garage door sitting on top of lacquer and all of that. There's no, it's not been primed. It's not been, it, so, so it is with the right treatment, you would think it. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. So, so yeah, I would, I would urge that before, uh, before the repaint. Um, but other than that, no, it's fine. Um, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a Fiesta that has been injected with sort of steroids and stuff. So, I, you know, there, stuff will go in it, I expect. But at the moment, it's, you know, it's, what, eight years old with 48,000 miles on it. And it's fine. It feels feels legit. Everything 
I like it still. Um, How are values yeah. in Britain? Because here... Um, pretty solid at the moment, it seems. Yeah. I haven't lost anything on the BMW in a year, it would appear. Um, I had a glance and basically the same car for the same with like 4,000 and 4,500 or whatever I put it on it in the last year is still the same value I bought it for. Um, yeah. So let's, put, let's pivot onto that then. Let's talk about the BMW as well. M2, what year? 17. Uh, was it 16? No, 16. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting because I've been, I've, I'm having the wheels resprayed because like, I scuffed them when Angie, when Angie was in France, um, helping her get too close to the, uh, the payage booth. And because there's this issue with the, basically, it's annoying me at the moment. I might end up selling it just because there's too many fucking things wrong with it. Uh, and BMW didn't do me any favors when they sold it to me. So I'm going to take it to a different dealership to get them to review the stuff that I want fixed with it. I can't drive it because uh, the wash white pumped broken. Um, the aircon's rubbish. And I think they knew that they overfilled it with aircon. So it was like sort of mist coming out of the vents when I bought it. So I was suspicious. And within two weeks, it stopped working properly. Um, there's a judder in through the brakes, which explains why they put the new pads and discs on when they sold it to me as the last thing they did before they gave me the car, like two days before. Oh, yeah, we put pads and discs around. I thought, but it saved me three, a gra- three and a half grand or whatever it is. But like, why? Well, it, they said, oh, it'll judder for a while. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. They're sports brakes. It's never gone away. Um, so, I, and I'm part of the reason I'm getting the the, cut, the wheels resprayed is that if I have to sell it, I want them in pristine condition. And also, I don't want them pointing at too little, a few, a few little scuffs done at two miles an hour at a payage and going, oh, that's why your your brakes are juddering because you, you know, yeah. knackered the fucking wheels, which is utter bullshit. Um, so, yeah, so it's going in. I'm, I've got like service and extended warranty and like manual, all this stuff on it. So, We'll see if they put it right properly. If they don't put it right properly, I'm just going to sell it and get rid of it. Um, I like it, but I can't enjoy it properly because the brake juddering is too... Because every time you come on the brakes at speed, like there's a juddering through the brakes, and that just doesn't inspire any confidence. So although I like the car to drive... How much does it have? 40-something, 44. Yeah. Um, It shouldn't... It like. I, I like the car, but unless they fix the stuff with it, I, well, if it's been abused, it. there's there's like forty thousand miles of abuse. You, you know who knows? Well, I mean, it shouldn't be. It's BMW used approved, but um, yeah, I mean everything they did, the dealership did on the cheap, you know, and it's like just disappointing. Um, and you know, they said, "Oh, we're going to get the wheels fixed because there's chips on it, and so therefore we need to get that fixed." You know, do you want them resprayed? I've told this story on this podcast before. They um resprayed them the gold I asked them to, but they just sprayed it straight over black. So it came back a sort of weird bronze color, which is not what I wanted and not what they offered to pay me for. You to, want to do name and shame the dealer? Because we've got like a uh, yeah, audience. Cooper's BMW, I think, or whatever it is, the one up in Colchester um, or wherever. I'll have to look it up, actually. I can't even remember. Cooper's in Colchester. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. It, it, essentially, I'll, I'll check and make sure that's correct because I don't want to shit talk anybody that wasn't. But um, yeah, um, it, it just overall disappointing experience i like the car um but you can't don't feel you can drive it properly and drop it drive it hard so um i don't like the amount of tech on it to be honest um so it sounds like there's not that much tech on it but i still find it annoying so are you talk so are you now thinking what your next thing will maybe be an older car with less tech but alone i i would have i i would undo it and swap back to the renault um at the moment um 
looking down the line of potentially living in France, one of the things that I was looking at idly the other weekend surfing for is, can you pick up old Clio 182s and stuff like that at reasonable numbers? Auto and the short version. Auto Scout. That was the app. Well, the short answer is, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, you there's, can. there's stuff around. Yeah. And part of the value of living in France would be that we'd have more space. So I can put a garage up or put a, you know a, one of those outdoor cupboard pieces up if there isn't one, one of those wooden ones. Um, so and have like covered shelter for you know, half a dozen cars and stuff. Well, I mean, the first thing I'll do is have some French stuff, um, you know, Renault principally. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, pick up a couple of hot hatches. Amen to that, right? Because everyone goes on about Citroen and the quirky design and, and all of that. And and yeah, Peugeot have this great Grand Prix heritage, you know, with the with that car from nineteen twelve, was it that has like the sixteen valves and the smaller engine capacities, arguably one of the most revolutionary Formula One cars of, of all time. I mean, I, I get that about about Peugeot, but I, I'm all about Renault from the, the French mm. makers. I'm all about Renault sort of of period period. They I feel like they I'd have, I'd have a 205 GTI and stuff, but they've left the stable. There's too many of those. They, they, they were, they're too old now. So um, you, you ain't going to get one for a modest price. Um, but I mean, also, yeah. also, the whole point of the 205 GTI was a bit like it was a, a bit like muscle cars. They were great performing, but they were affordable. Whereas hmm. now they're not affordable. They're like, so, no. so for example, I was thinking the other day, like how cool it would be. I was looking at Sierra Cosworths and thinking, how cool it would be if I was in a financial position to the next time I come to Europe, instead of having to put up with some bloody rental car, being able to just buy a Sierra Cosworth. And I'm like, no, it's a collector car. You couldn't leave it anywhere. It'd be stolen. Like it, it would, right? They, because the kind of people who are into the, you know. It, it, oh, yeah, dude. I mean, like it's 60 to 80K for one of those things now anyway. So, I mean, it, they're, they're a lot of money. Um, and look, I mean, I would have other, the Saxo VTS. I would have one of those. Again, if you can find one, I doubt you'd be able to find one. But the Citroen stuff, I'd be more interested in having one of the, that massive, ugly as fuck execu-barge thing they produced recently. I'd be interested in that because, you know, who, who, what? it's... I, I can't even remember what it's called. Their, their version of the 7 Series, Citroen did a massive one. But of course, it's Citroen, so it'll be comfy yeah. as hell because of the, the suspension. The C6. So it could be. Yeah, I follow. Wait, there's a YouTuber called Up and Down, with weird name, but he's basically a TVR mechanic on the South Coast. And he has a rather dour, self-deprecating manner, but he clearly knows his stuff because he does... He does TVRs, but he also has, does Citroens, and he has one of these C6s. And I think it is an awesome. I'm not into French cars, into Citroens particularly, but it's an awesome piece. I'm into Renault. I, I prefer. Your dad had that Renault Fuego GTX in the 80s. Those wheels that were the parallel mm. slash design genius. Right? Mm. Yeah, that was a cool car, actually. Yeah. That, and, um, to and to to wit, right the way through to your to your McGann, rather like Ford, they always got the styling language right. But I always felt the design had more flair than Ford. I always feel Renault had a bit more flair than Ford. Yeah, um, I mean, look again. You know, with with the with the RS products, you you know where they've spent the money. Um, 
it's not on the interior particularly it's not unpleasant and there was a few toys on there i had a little screen reversing camera and stuff so pretty well specced out for a hot hatch but um the interior isn't a patch on like the uh, comparable golf and things like that so but you know I, i'm not so fussed but yeah then that c6 thing um loads of toys citroen uber cool suspension and you know i wouldn't give a shit about it so <laughs> you'd um you could probably pick one. I expect. I, I mean, I'm guessing, but I expect the depreciation on massive French luxury cars is pretty terrible. Yeah. yeah. So you could again um, probably pick up a pretty, uh, pretty decent bargain on them. I would suspect. Well, the prices um, are ticking up now. I think you used to be able to get them really cheap, but uh, and and the yeah. other thing with I think with cars like that is is the time to buy them isn't when they're working, when somebody else has ironed out all their faults. Because at that point, the poor blighter is into the thing. Months of blood, sweat and tears and, you know, thousands of dollars in mechanic bills, right? So that's not the time to buy the car. The time to buy the car is when it's broken. But then you're in for the blood, sweat and tears, right? Now, and that yeah. that segues me onto the little, the, onto the next, uh, onto, I was going to talk about the old E55, is mm. now out of storage and and uh i did buy non-running for a low price and did spend more money to get running and now it works but my word um so that was you remember i had it i got i'd had it a week before i met you in los angeles with it, mm. and we drove all around and now at that time did it feel tired to you or did it feel kind of all right just I mean, it felt like it done a lot of miles but it didn't feel particularly dog-eared yeah not so much now i guess the environment here right by the beach is kind of savage with the salt atmosphere mm. so it now looks like it's lived in northern england it's all like it's got rust on every panel it's got along by the sunroof it's got like a hole like you can get your hand in um uh, well, i mean wouldn't it be worth getting all that shit repaired fairly quickly on the basis that i was at the car still appreciating isn't it and we were looking at the roof these the hughes the, the the mechanic guy and i was like how would you fix that and he went huh cut roof off and then motioned a slashing motion at the top of the c pillar and i was like really and he went only way I mean, my dad was like, you know, you could duct tape and you could put a spoiler and all of that. And I'm like, and you're from the 1950s, dad, much as I, <laughs> much as I love you, I, I couldn't do that. Um, so I had thought, well, maybe I flip it. Yeah, maybe I let somebody else, because mechanically it's super strong. I, I've done, and I should say, it's now approaching 158,000 miles. So I've done 30,000 miles in it, right? It's not like I've, so this is why it looks the way it's street parked and I used it, not exclusively, but you know, it, it uh, and, and it drives brilliantly, right? It drives, well, I, I say that actually, like at the moment, I think it might need a wheel bearing. And this, this is the problem with it. So it, it's been in storage, I would say six months, something like that, it's sat. And it fired up and it ran fine and you know apart from this 
kind of grumbly wheel bearing, which I can't work out if it's a grumbly wheel bearing or if it needs tires at the front. Hugh says it needs tires at the front because it's like cut the tires. Why does it do that? Well, they all do that. So well, really, I'm sure it didn't do that from the factory. So, but, you know, fundamentally, it goes down the road really well. And, and the motor is strong as the as the day is long. I, I, I still, I'm still astonished by the giddy up to like 120 miles an hour. It's like a sports bike to to 120. It just you just get there without you know you just right flex your right foot and you just it's awesome, awesome experience. Um, but yeah, uh, bodily now in a in a bad way. I the seat split, so I put tape on now that tape splitting the. Uh, um, Ollie swang on the hood ornament and it broke, and now it has a hole. Um, tire guys um, broke the center cap when they were fitting. The, I don't know how you do that, but it's missing a center cap. Um, I quite like it, right? It looks, but it now is looking really uh, uh, long in the. T- I mean, if you, it's it's. I suspect if you put money into it. I guess, um, you would get more out if you know what I mean. That's, that's where I'm going. It needs a massive spend again. I think. Mm. It needs the kind of spend I spent on it when it was was um, to uh, deal with. So I, I I don't know what to do because mechanically it's it's sound. So this is what I was going to say. This is what in fact prompted the running report. As I got it back, it was working fine. But I've still spent of the last week two and a half days on it. Right? This is why I get nothing done on other things, right? Because it needed nothing. It's worked fine. Oh, but I had to change the central locking because you can't leave it anyway if it doesn't lock, right? So, and I guess it has this pneumatic pump that operates the central locking, but also things like the headrests that recline and the trunk release. So far, so good, right? That's right. When the pump fails, you can't open the trunk. Like, I, yeah, I know you should be able to put the key in and turn it, right? But trust me, that is not. That was not. Um, so, so I replaced the pump one day, right? Then I go to move it yesterday morning, <laughs> and I've been thinking, you know, that battery. It's done all the time that I've had it, and it is not like the best quality battery in the first place, you know. Well, sure enough. So then I'm like wrestling around trying to find a jumper, and and oh, like just I wanted to do my day, not immediately after firefight getting a new battery. Guess how much a new battery costs for a 2002 Mercedes Benz E55 AMG. Oh, probably north of 100 bucks. 300. Yeah. No. I mean, I could have I could have gone for like one that was like, you know, $50 less, but that one had less cranking amps. And, you know, I just, this was not, I didn't buy the most expensive one. You know, I, I, I bought a little widget actually the other day on Amazon that you plug onto the positive terminal that you can just unscrew and it disconnects the internal connections. So it's disconnected the circuit on the battery. So in order you don't even need to take the thing off, you can just unscrew the thing when you go to leave the car in storage again. I'm going to put it on the Z. Good idea. 
I mean, you have to, yeah. whatever works for you. I don't have a problem with taking the batteries off, with taking the battery terminals. Hubnut leaves the battery terminals loose so you can just remove it easily and then wonders why he won't damp start. I'm like, so, you know, each to their own, right? As ever with mm. Hubnut, you're like, dude, you collect different stuff from me. You have really odd methods, but, you know, whatever works, works for you. You know whatever works for you my fear with those switches is they just introduce a level of complication that you could have just oh it's mechanical it's basically it's sort of it's because it basically changes when you unscrew it it sort of physically can disconnects two pieces of metal inside that's that's why i quite liked it yeah. on the basis that it is basically unscrew it so i can and because i don't have to faff around taking it off or un, taking a screwdriver or something like that with me if i'm leaving it in a particular area where for you know in anti-theft becomes much simpler to implement as well so yeah yeah i'm just going to eat this bar i'm just going to edit out the scrumpling because i can just mute myself i'm such a master of the editing suite now um having a low blood sugar moment here so, uh, 321 rocking along at over five and over So to make a like pivot to actually talk about why I made an effort to uh, be like, do this call like now, so we can separately talk about this Route 66 road trip, because I have other stuff going on. I'm going to be picking up a free motorcycle. Did you know about this? I thought you'd bought another one. Um, or is this one that you've been since the Zuma? The Zuma was the last one I bought, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. But somebody offered me a Honda Shadow. Oh, yeah. okay. So I thought it was the Shadow. Okay, yeah. so, you, so it, it was, you didn't buy that. That was just gift. Yeah. I have to go and get it, mm. though. And it's in Grass Valley, which is miles away. And I, of course, don't have a pickup truck or indeed any vehicle with a tow hitch to do it. So I ran into truck. Does it not run? Sorry? Does it run? I mean, they say it does, but it's sat for a bit. Hmm. It's like some dude who's traveling and it was his bike and he stored the bike with a mate and now he's staying away. So he's just getting rid of all of his stuff. Apparently it ran, but like, you know, so I, I don't know whether or not it will go. I'm assuming that it, it will, but I... Um, no, I can see why you want to pick it up on the truck. Um, it, well, here's the thing, right? But how am I? I, I originally had, was going to have Jason go with me, but I can't arrange a time when Jason Jason can't do a weekday and it costs more to rent the truck over a long weekend. I can't rent it just for a day at the weekend. Maybe I could do with a different vendor now that I didn't know about before, but, you know, a different... Um, anyway, anyway... Um, and I should say we're endorsing services. United Rentals, who did me the, the 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 who were doing me the pickup truck, they've been really great to uh, to, to to work with. Um, um, 
yeah, I've rented a trailer as well with a ramp on it. So I don't need to push it up into the back because I think I'm going to be on my own or at least with Ollie. So if it runs, I'll just flat foot, I'll just, you know, I'll just clutch mm-hmm. it up into the trailer. And if it doesn't, I'll push it. And uh, the trailer's got like a big flat ramp on it and is, you know, designed and insured for motorcycles. And I've towed with them before, you know. So I don't know. I'm a bit scared of the fact that it's a cruiser. So it's like bigger and heavier than anything that I'm used to. But, you know, that's the adventure. So that's uh, that's upcoming. So I wanted to, uh, no doubt there'll be a post-adventure uh, re- report on, on that. But I wanted to separate that from this road trip that I did last week with Ollie, which was the first proper road trip that he's done. And you know, Vice Grip Garage Derek, you know, the way that he will like get a pickup truck and drive it home. And often his son Bentley will go along. Ollie was like, I want to, I want to do that. You know, I want to do so. So Derek and Bentley had done this like Route 66 road trip. Well, I drove across the country. I drove some of Route 66. I realized that in California, particularly, there's a lot of really rich Route 66 history. You can drive on the real you know, it, it, it's like a Roman road in Europe kind of experience that you can drive on the actual tarmac that the, mm. you know, that was the original mother road kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you could do all of that. So I wanted to do it. Um, and Ollie was keen to, so I thought, you know, I'll do a road trip, which, which ties together a couple of other things. The other thing I wanted to, to, to do was, uh, the place where they found gold in California is a town called Coloma, not far from Sacramento. And when I was telling Ollie about it and saying I was going to go there, he was like, oh, James Marshall, you know, in a in the tail of a sawmill. And I'm like, what? And he knew far more about it than I did because, of course, he'd studied it at school and had been, uh, had been paying attention. So... I was like, well, I can't go on my own if my like little sage can't come along, come along with me. So Coloma's one thing. And the other thing that we did was, you know, that rocket plane, the X-15 that we've talked about before and, and viewers, if you don't know about listeners, viewers, what, what the fuck ever, um, the, this X-15 plane is like part firework, part aeroplane, part science experiment, right? Basically it was, yeah, there were two kinds of flights, either how fast you could go or how high you could go. And it was all experimenting with space travel. And uh, I guess once it went wrong and the plane fell into the desert, into the Mojave Desert, and there's a memorial site there. So we went there to see what we could find. And uh, I mean, well, forgive me, I've, I've told you this before, but literally we stayed in some town, um, Ridgecrest. And then this site is like 55 miles on one road, 17 miles on another road. And then it's like an unpaved road that I would say is probably two or three miles long. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, people, viewers, listeners, whatever, pedants can check and see how factually incorrect I am. But when you've driven miles and not seen any cars for ages, and then the GPS is like, it's over there in the scenery. 
up that dirt road, that is a pretty intimidating kind of of, of thing. So, uh, um, was pleased. Um, well, I'll talk about the truck in in a minute, but yeah, it was that was so it was Coloma, it was this X fifteen Memorial, and it was um, then go to this place Seligman Arizona, which is radiator springs from the cars movie that was the movie okay. that the that was the town that the the movie company more than any other used for for inspiration for this notion of old america and new america and the old america being bypassed by the building of a new superhighway, which you know, at the time was a physical thing. But of course, now, if we think of it in terms of information, superhighways and the way that, that the tech savvy of, of, of left much of, of rural America and indeed rural, you know, the developed world generally is, you know, urban developed world leaders left behind, you know, there's deep metaphors. For... Anyway, so we and, and Ollie enjoyed the Carl's movie. So we, we went to this uh, radiators. Uh, Springs place. What we also did unexpectedly was spend two days in Vegas. And that was because, I mean, I, instead of when I realized that our route was going to be like across the Mojave Desert in July, I was like, "Mm, maybe my Mustang with its dodgy air conditioning, which, like your BMW, it either, it, what, what, what happens is if people recharge it, often the recharge has a leak sealer in it. Because in theory, you shouldn't need to recharge it. There must be a leak in the system for you to need to recharge it. So the recharge, but the recharge stuff with the goop in it, that blocks up the machine. So then people's, like the Ford guy that I go to, he doesn't want to fix it because then all the goop's going to go into his machine. He's going to have to clean up. Uh, clean up his machine so there must be a better way of fixing air conditioning but but either way that's the situation with the air conditioning on on the mustang so i was like i don't really want to take that car well it was lucky that i didn't because this dirt road to this major michael adams thing there's no way a v8 mustang could have made it down there if i just tried i don't think i'd want to try and if i'd tried we'd have got stuck and that would not have been an option because it's fine rolling along at 55 miles an hour with the windows down when it's 120 degrees, which it was, but it is not fine when you stop. Like when, hmm. and, and literally it's like, I'm stopping. I'm we're, we're, we're pulled over at the side of the road and I'm booking a hotel for the night. And first there's sweat dripping off my nose onto the phone. And then the phone is overheating and needing to be put in the cooler in order to work again for us to be able to book some accommodation for the night before we can get back to our semi-air-conditioned rolling at 55 miles an hour. So, yeah. So uh, the truck was from United Rentals. They were a pleasure to deal with, but they don't really do trucks. Um, They mostly just do tools. And I guess I got an awesome rate. But I got an awesome rate on a two-wheel drive, non-crew cab, like day cab truck. And they didn't have that. They had they gave me 
a four-wheel drive crew cab, like at 250, like an F250 it was. It was like, a, I don't know, I knew it was. Um, it had 40,000 miles, but the air con was done. But of course, in San Francisco, I didn't notice that. I only noticed that when we were, you know, on the way out to Coloma and it was getting warm on the first day. And I was like, oh, you know, the air conditioning, which had seemed to not that powerful in San Francisco, but, you know, there, now it was clear it was just moving air around and there was no air conditioning at all. Mm. Yeah. So that shit sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's brutal. Yeah. So we did the Major Michael Adams thing. And then it was like, I, I, and then I was like, well, we can't come this close to Death Valley and not visit. You know, I don't need to stop. I, there's not much to see, is there? I mean, I know if you if you're like into geology and all of that, you can stop. But I wasn't going to try and, you know, to be honest, I drove a different road in. I didn't do 190 all the way in. I drove a different road in. And the strata in the rocks was more impressive on the way up the hill into Death Valley than it was actually inside Death Valley. I know I've in the past I've been to Badwater and had seen like I didn't do that this time because it was it was at one point the the temperature gauge on the truck said 124. 124. So uh mm-hmm. the boy was a trooper to be able to put up with it basically and not just lose the plot altogether because it's it, there is a measurable difference between 100 and 110 and 110 and 120 and i'd never experienced that before that and that was um a yeah you can see why those is it i think it was the dust sort of thing about death valley tourist information people that even the the wardens and stuff there when it gets above 40 they go out in pairs just to be safe so if one of you has gets heat stroke or has a bit of a wibble, then uh, you know there's someone else there to get your ass back. You know? So you can see why it's it's yeah yeah. When we were there, a couple of hikers were, you know, didn't make it. You know, I didn't know at the time, but afterwards I've read that. Um, you know, and it's the classic thing where they'd gone down into the canyon, and it'd been hotter down there. And then it was hard work climbing back up out, out of the canyon. It like, and it, I I don't know if one of them had fallen because they weren't discovered together. So I don't know, one of them had like slipped and fallen, or one of them had couldn't make couldn't move further, and the other one had. But either way, really bad news. Yeah, that's it's, uh, that's rough. Yeah, now the guides all told you about that when you did the. Uh... If you do the Grand Canyon trails and the helicopter in and out and stuff, they will say to you like, you know, walking down's easy you know allow sort of three or four times the amount of time it took you to go down and plan for you know remember you're climbing a mountain on the way out essentially um so coloma where they discovered gold was really quite cool there's like a replica mill by the river so you can like see what it was like and then the place where the mill because the mills all made of wood so of course it's gone um but then the place where it was discovered in the river is is marked so i guess what was what was happening was this guy james marshall was building the mill and the mill was by the edge of the water because the saw was going to be driven by a wheel um well at the and so what he would do was every night he would 
um, basically have the water run over and use that to like move the soil that he needed to move to make the mill. Did that to, so he would go down in the morning and look at what the water had done, basically to help him do his work. So he was down there looking at the spillway, like at the end of the at the end of uh, you know where the the river's gone through it's, it's operated the water mill the spillway at the end of that that was where he saw the gold um he saw like a nugget apparently um and then when he looked there was you know when they looked there was more um so yeah so the the gold rush is born right there so that was pretty cool um we drove from there. Do you know, I'm not sure if you've ever driven it in your visits to California, um, Highway 395, which is the road that runs up the back of the Sierra Nevadas. It's in California, but it runs up the back of the Sierra Nevadas. It's a really picturesque road. If you've not driven it, it is one to, to really uh, drive. We, we So from Coloma, we crossed over the Sierra Nevadas and then drove all the way down 395, which I've which I've wanted to do for years and years and years. And then, uh, you know, that night we were in Ridgecrest. Then we did the Major Michael Adams. Then we crossed Death Valley the, the next day. And then we just holed up in Vegas for a couple of days, um, you know, recovering bits from the it. fact. I haven't driven all of it. L bits of it. Yeah, it's worth, uh, it's, it's worth, um, it's worth doing all of it. Um, the Route 66 thing as well, that was really an awesome thing. Um, I had driven it as far as like Bakersfield and then had come north to San Francisco when I was driving across the country. Um, it is uh, across in, in the further west you go, the more sections of the road are complete. And from Seligman, there's holes around Seligman, around this town, Amboy. There's whole sections of the road which are absolutely complete. Um, as you get towards, we, we spent the night in Barstow, but between, you know, basically between um, Seligman and Victorville, and Victorville's where it becomes like L.A. sprawl. Basically, a lot of that you can drive the actual original road. And it's not like jamming through town centers. It's really like there was one section, there was one mountain pass that we did where it was like switchbacks with 15 mile an hour turns. And you're reminded that, that I mean, this that section must have been bypassed in the 19. 40s or something because you know it's like switchback road because remember route 66 is designated route 66 the lincoln highway or whatever it was called it was called route 66 in 1926 but the road continually evolved so route 66 is a contiguous route was already gone by the 1960s so when you so if you think about you know um you know our parents generation going west to California, you know, the American version of our parents' generation going west to California, they weren't driving on this winding road across the, that was, that was what, you know, um, was happening in the 1920s, you know, that was, was not, uh, um, but it was surprising that, that, you know, 
at one point I was I we pulled over the side of the road to take a leak and then sort ourselves out a little bit and uh I said to Ollie we could roll in the middle of the road couldn't we because there was no cars coming and the next minute he was in the middle of the road rolling backwards and forwards being like I rolled on route 66 so uh yeah we um we lived the dream so to uh so to speak um we also uh went to LA so we ended by you know going into to LA and I did think what can I you know what can I do with him which is uh, which is in in keeping and you know we went to the 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 end of Route sixty six in LA is right in Santa Monica. I guess that there's two endings. Once ended in in uh, like on Seventh Street in downtown LA. Well, I don't know if you know what downtown LA is like now, but uh, the last time I was there, which is albeit it was ten years ago, it was unpleasant. So Ollie and I bypassed that and went to the end of Route sixty six from the thirties, which is Santa Monica which is Olympic and Lincoln, the intersection of Olympic and Lincoln, which is right where if you come off at the right intersection on the freeway, which we did more by chance than by skill, more just because that was the way that I used to drive when I used to go into Santa Monica with uh, with Mark all those years ago. Um, we would, you know, it was that intersection. So, um, so that was quite cool. Um, so, you know, you maybe know this, you maybe don't, Carol Shelby's original factory was in Santa Monica. It's called Santa Monica now. It's called Marina del Rey. There, they moved the border between what's Marina del Rey and what's Santa Monica. But um, he, so the very first factory, Carter Street, that was gone and replaced by like modern high-rise flats. When I visited, like I don't know. Um, like early 2000s right when i was uh uh um around the corner 1042 princess street you know that clip of film where shelby's stood with the cobra and he's like my name's carol shelby and performance is my business and behind him there's a brick building with these high narrow windows that building is 1042 princess street and years ago you might remember I you could actually get in the back of it and I've got photos of my Mustang parked up at the same spot as the as the as the Cobra. And that was probably that was probably ten years ago now. Um you might remember I went back to get some photos one time and they put a gate in and it was a children's talent agency. And I was there with that brown van, the the molester van. And, you know, that whole, so that was really a weird thing with me, like taking pictures and like, why are you taking pictures? And, you know, so this strange LA story of the home found, founding of Cobra, now, you know, the, the home of the Cobra now being this weird. Well, now the business is in different use. They've modified the entrance to the building. So it has a roll up door, the gate's still there. So, you know, it, it's changed. So Ollie and I went there and I got a folk, got more photos they've they're basically turning the whole area from light industrial into like it's gentrifying into townhomes and all of the like and the townhomes you can only access it one way there's all these cul-de-sacs to make sure that the streets are quiet so it's really annoying because the gps wasn't caught up and you're in la traffic in this giant bloody pickup truck which doesn't fit anywhere 
um it was so that was was uh, a bit of excitement so i did the only natural thing and what i planned to do which was run out to the ocean run out to malibu along pch now do you know that turning you may do at the bottom of i think it's lincoln where you turn left to go down onto pch from santa monica and it's like a left right on ramp old piece of of concrete and i wanted to take ollie there because uh I was there once with Mark. I was on one of his uh, on one of his bikes, like an RGB 250, before it overheated. Only rode it once, overheated, two stroke. Didn't get it then. Wished had wished had understood it better. Now didn't understand what it was there. It was just slow and noisy and smelly and hard to ride to me then. Which uh, you know now I'd spend now I'd sell a kidney to have one, but you know didn't know then. Mark's on the super motard away from the lights. He's up on one wheel. And then did the full S down onto the beach on the rear wheel. And I've got an image in my mind of him on the rear wheel with the beach, the Baywatch beach, with the towers, you know, that you remember from Baywatch as a teenager. And uh, so it's one of my great um, L.A. Uh, images. Um, so I wanted Ollie to, uh, to, to see that spot. So we did. We drove round to Paradise Cove. And uh, I forgive me, I, I mentioned this to you before. Uh, the service was shit and the food was shit too. And I still love the place because it's so cool sitting on the beach with the toes in the, in, your sa- in the sand and they do a good margarita. And, you know, I'm not that picky about the food really. And you can walk on the beach afterwards. And that's what Ollie, that's what Ollie and I did, strolled along the beach afterwards and then uh, went back into Malibu went in a supermarket, um, bought some ice cream and sat in the car park of the of the Ralphs in Malibu eating ice cream, generally feeling like the cat that got the cream, yeah. you know. On the, yeah. I approve of that. Yeah. Um, uh, I am glad to hear it. Um, you know what I want to do now, and this is following the agenda, I just want to pay tribute to one of the other guys that I'm a, a pebble docent with. And, and this is for anybody who's seen that movie, Ford versus Ferrari. In Ford versus Ferrari, the early scene takes place at 1052 Princeton, right? The scene where, but, but then there is another, then subsequent scenes take place at the factory out at the airport. And the testing takes place out at the factory out at the airport. The reason for that move was Ford's deal with Shelby to turn the Mustang, the secretary's car, which Shelby quote, turn the Mustang into the GT350 and make sure, make it taken seriously in, in motorsport. Right? The guy, Shelby hired a guy to complete that move and build the production line for the Shelby GT350. His name is Bruce Juna. He's 94 years old and I do Pebble Beach with him each year. Um, Super spry, super with it. He's written a book. I'll put a link in for it. It's like self-published. It's, you know, that's his only, you know, literally he was hired to do the move and that was it, you know, and he worked, but, but there are, um, there are, this is, you know, in, in, uh, in years to come, this kind of direct link with these 
um, mythical, legendary, historical figures within motorsport. This, this will seem that the more awesome, especially when normal cars aren't gas powered. You know, we're very quickly getting to a stage where normal cars aren't gas powered. So the whole Cobra story and, and motorsport, and of course it ties to the X15 because it's this period where you just went out and drove, you went out and flew and you saw what happened. And yes, there were some casualties, but you know, that's the price of, of progress. And we're not, as a society, we're not in that place anymore, are we? I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong. Um, Bruce mm -hmm. Jr. Um, I was going to say the other thing that really brought back some memories for me, um, being around Paradise Cove, being up and down uh, PCH, was um, back when Mark lived in Topanga Canyon with the dude that was the star of the Sex and the City movie. Um, at that time, my Honda CBR track bike lived in that house in Topanga Canyon as well. And Mark and I would get out and ride quite a lot in the canyon roads around LA. And it was surprising to me that as I was coming along PCH, both to um, Paradise Cove and coming back again, what I was thinking of was the CBR. I'd not realized that that's probably the most I rode that bike was down in LA and around there. And, and uh, yeah, and, and how I might not have done a million miles on that bike. I've probably only done like three or 4,000 miles on it. But it's that, it's it's the quality of the miles, not the amount of the miles, I suppose, that I was uh, was, was thinking about. Yeah, definitely. That's a mantra you should apply to motorbikes, definitely. So on Mark's profundity, it's, uh, as the two Ronnies used to say, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him because this is future John, editor John, interrupting. Um, we talked for so long when I recorded this last one, like even with all the edit bits I'm going to trim out, two and a half hours, that I thought I'd make this into two episodes. So this is only part one, and I guess part two or episode 12 is going to be the, the, the next thing that I edit that was recorded at the same time, but through the um, magic of the editing process is not going to be like that. This episode has been brought to you by Grand Touring Motorsports as part of our Motoring Podcast Network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, the Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.